0: He is risen. He is risen All right. Why don't we turn to Matthew 28. We're going to look at the last few verses in the gospel according to Matthew today. As you turn there. If uh, you're not a regular here, uh, I'm Jeff Giampa. I'm the pastor here at IBC. And uh, welcome. Matthew 28. Starting in verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our merciful God, we thank you (coughs) for the risen Lord this beautiful Sunday morning. We thank you that our Jesus could not be contained in a tomb or be held back by a stone or by a Roman steel. Or by military guards. We look to Him as our Savior and hope this morning. Grant to us that we may hear what your word teaches about Jesus and what that that we might be given uh, the, the strength and the will to follow Him. Cause us to worship you with our minds as we think on these things. Our hearts We harbor these things in our bodies as we give them for your service. Lord, show us Jesus this morning. We give this time over to you and to your word. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. We spend a lot of time teaching through the scriptures here because we're the Bible church. It's what we do, right? Uh, and, And much of where we lead with that, the, the application piece is how should we respond to God or how should we respond to His Word? But how does God respond to Himself? We respond to ourselves, right? Anybody ever make a decision and then immediately afterward think, no, I really wish I hadn't done that? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Or, or, or when we accomplish something great, Right, something that was challenging or difficult, we respond. Right, Some of us respond by bragging about it. Uh, some respond by taking time to relax and reflect on it. Some of us move right on to the next challenging thing. Some of us don't know what that's like because all we have is a whole list of challenging things that we have started and intend to finish one day. Guilty. Uh, how do we respond to ourselves when we fail at something, for example. Do we hide? Do we pray? Do we just try it again? Do we go to tell the pastor every detail of every failure we've ever experienced? That's what I'm here for. That's good. Spill your guts. Sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes that's the best way to process things. I remember when I, I scheduled my private pilot check checkride. I was about 18 years old. And I told no one. I didn't tell anybody because if I failed, I didn't want anybody to know. But I passed. And what do you think I did? I told everybody. I mean, and to an annoying degree. I, and because I was an immature teenager, I would not shut up about it. I responded to my achievement by making sure that everybody knew I was a private pilot. Uh, and some of that was just immature pride, you know, 18 years old. But I think most pilots probably do that with their private check checkride. That's kind of a cool accomplishment uh, today. You probably see it all over Facebook if your friend got their private pilot's license. Now, Jesus predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. And he pulled it off. The greatest accomplishment that could ever occur in the natural and supernatural worlds. Jesus predicted his own death and burial and resurrection. I would argue that taking the sins of broken humanity upon himself by his own suffering is a greater accomplishment than even creation itself. During Holy Week, we often hear some of the greatest sermons. So I'll stand here apologizing now. But these sermons usually uh, emphasize the hopefulness of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Or they demonstrate how we ought to respond. Many times we see it's, it's very common to look upon the apologetics of the empty tomb. How it would have been impossible for Jesus, even if his carpal nerves were still intact, having been beaten the way he was, hung on a cross with nails, and pierced in his heart, to have got up, rolled the stone away himself from the inside and walked away. Even an uninjured person would be unable to move the stone from the inside, regardless of how strong they were. Even Chuck Norris couldn't do that. And he doesn't even do push-ups. He pushes the earth down. Also, one of the other things, how, breaking a Roman seal carried with it a death sentence, and there was a Roman seal on that tomb, right? And then the guard, you know, if a guard were to fall asleep on his watch, he would be put to death. And, and then why would the disciples risk the same execution to deceive people into thinking Jesus rose from the dead if he hadn't? And then all but one of them die for something that they knew was a lie? Like you'd think one of them would crack. You'd think one of them would have told somebody where, the, where to find the body, right? And so clearly, the government the, the cover-up was by the government I, I know that's hard to believe, but that the government would cover something up. And in light of all of these things that we normally think on during Easter, I spent some time meditating on what we might miss in our usual Easter themes. And I prayed over that. And I think looking upon the hope and how we should respond, and, you know, those are, that's very important to emphasize. Uh, Proving the resurrection, also an important topic to cover. Hopefully we're not seeing a lot of preaching about vermin that lay eggs full of candy. Um, But, or, you know, and, and, you know, perhaps, you know, maybe, trying to deal with family traditions like egg painting and easter egg hunts and whether or not christians are free to participate in those things might lead to things like unhelpful arguments Um, i've heard that sermon a few times don't want to go there but how many of us have spent much time considering the response of jesus to his own resurrection Even in our text today, we usually focus on how the disciples are told to respond. But this is a section that reveals, I think, in a very clear way, how Jesus responded to his own resurrection. Now, since we will hit the resurrection of Jesus later on in Luke, uh, we're going to take a break from that series. And just like Palm Sunday, we're going to look at Matthew. And so I want to give you a little context, if you recall... Luke was written by a non-Jew to a non-Jew. In contrast, Matthew is considered the Jewish gospel. It's written by a Jew to a Jewish audience, which, which affects what content would have been necessary to include and how we would read it. Matthew was written by Matthew, also known as Levi, who is a repentant, tax collector. We read about, read about him a, a couple of weeks ago, if you recall, when Jesus called him to be a disciple. The Gospel according to Matthew is filled with imagery, prophecy, conflict, eschatology, which is the end times events. Now the passage today is the very last pericope of Matthew, and there there's a similar account in Mark at the very end of the Gospel of Mark, which actually... We don't find in the earliest, the most reliable manuscripts. So it may have been actually a footnote that a scribe, from a scribe that may have found its way into the text or something. That doesn't mean it didn't happen, or that the text is corrupted or unreliable or anything. It just probably wasn't marked that put it there. Um, and that might be a little hard for some of us, but it's important that we're honest about these things because if we're not, we have. A lot of reliable information, and we don't want that to be called into question, do we? So here's the thing in in, in Matthew. There is no question about that part in Matthew. It's clear. This is here. It's real. Um, it covers roughly the same time period where Jesus had risen from the dead, walked the earth for 40 days before he ascended into heaven. And in Acts 1, verse 3, this is what it says. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So during that time, this is taking place, what we read. Now, so now that we have the kind of historical and literary context, let's get into our passage. So Matthew 28, and keep your finger there all morning. Matthew 28, verse 16. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Jesus had served them the Passover meal and instituted communion while they were in Jerusalem. That's also where he was crucified and then appeared to them after he was resurrected. But he told them to go to Galilee at some point. Before he was arrested, this is what he tells his disciples in Matthew 26:32. Matthew twenty six thirty two. After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And then here's what happens on the Sunday after the crucifixion. So back over to Matthew 28. We're just getting the, the timeline here. Matthew 28, 1 through 8. Now after the Sabbath... Jesus, who is crucified. You know, it's really funny. Every time an angel shows up, they t- have to tell somebody not to be afraid, which tells me that angels have got to be terrifying. That's not the little precious moments porcelain figurine. Like, who's afraid of that? Right? He, he's not here, for he has risen. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee there you will see him see I have told you so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples now the instructions to return to Galilee were clear and the 11 disciples obeyed now if you recall there were 12 disciples but Judas lost his disciple card when he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And then he hung himself, so he was done with the disciple gig. Um, and we also learned that he had told them to meet him on a mountain. How many times in Scripture does God meet somebody on a mountain? Quite a bit, right? And it's always a big deal. It's never like, meet me on a mountain. Oh, yeah, here's, you know, I don't know. You, know, you should buy McDonald's today. Um, but... It's always a big deal. God met Moses on a mountain, and Moses came back with the Ten Commandments. Right? Verse 17. Matthew 28, 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Some doubted. Now, one of the things we see is that he receives worship. The the response of the disciples to the, the appearance of the risen Lord was to worship him. And his response is to receive that worship. So Jesus responds to his resurrection by, number one, receiving the worship of his followers. That's the first point. Now we're going to see
1: a note about some who doubted.
0: Now, some of who? Who was with him? Eleven disciples. Some of the disciples doubted. First, it's unlikely that any of that doubt had, had to do with the resurrection. That, they believed that. They, it was, that was done. It was over whether or not they were actually seeing the risen Lord at that moment. You know, in Luke 24, a couple disciples were on the road to Emmaus. He appears to them, he travels with them for some time, and, and then they recognize him. So, for some reason or another, he wasn't always recognized right away in his resurrected body. And, you know, we all do struggle with doubt sometimes, don't we? It's true, the disciples themselves struggle with doubt. And when we struggle with doubt, it's, it's helpful to look back, to remember what you've learned about Jesus, remember what he's done for you. And the text here doesn't tell us how they overcame that doubt, but it goes right into what Jesus says. So this is what's important. Verse 18, Matthew 28:18. 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, this is important. This is where we get into the meat of the passage. One of the things I think we often neglect is the authority of Jesus. And for a couple of reasons. First, because we like to receive love, grace, mercy, healing, forgiveness, things of that sort. But we really don't like authority because we don't want to have to submit to it, right? How many times have we heard the, the Frank Sinatra song at a funeral service? And now the end is near. And so I face that final curtain. I know you thought I was going to sing it to you, didn't you? My friend, I'll make it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. And more, much more than this. Do you know what? I did it my way. And I, I think if I'm honest, if I were to die right now, that might not be an entirely inappropriate song. God save me, right? It's how we want to all want to live our lives. Our way, right? We would rather do it our way than submit to authority. It seems much more fun. But the second reason we tend to neglect the authority of Jesus in the Western church is that we really don't understand authority at all. Like, heaven is not a democracy, but we live in a culture that holds the restraint of authority through democracy as one of its highest and most sacred values, which may be good for America, but that's not how the kingdom of heaven works. And so it can be difficult to think of Jesus in terms of authority over us. Zambian theologian Joe Capolio said, Jesus has the authority in nature and in the church because he created both. In Psalm 2, we're given a picture of the authority of Messiah. Psalm 2, starting in verse 6 through verse 9. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possessions you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then the apostle John tells us in John three thirty-five, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. And then in Philippians, Paul says this, Philippians chapter two, verse nine, it says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah, that's a a passage that we often weaponize to point at others, right? But it points to us. It speaks of us too. We also must bow our knees to Jesus in humble submission. He doesn't just say he has authority. He says he has all authority. The word all dominates this passage. He has all authority. Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all I've commanded. I'm with you always or all the days. When he says all authority, it means there is no exception. That means he has authority... Uh, that transcends our desires, it transcends our rights, it transcends our freedoms. And here in this place, Jesus preludes his upcoming statement by asserting his authority. So Jesus is responding to his resurrection by exerting his divine authority. It's not, wasn't a new concept. In fact, the, the prophet Daniel has this to say in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. I saw in the night, So here it is. Jesus responds to his resurrection by, one, receiving worship from his followers, and, two, asserting his authority to his followers. Jesus has all authority. Next, we see Jesus exercising his authority by giving a command. So go back to Matthew 28 and verses 19 and the first part of verse 20 He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Go therefore can be read as, as you are going. It's important to keep in mind that he's speaking to his disciples or those who are followers of Jesus and his teachings. So this is speaking of any of us who are Christ's followers. We are disciples. The 11 brought Matthias uh, to bring the number back to 12 again, and they actually had apostolic authority as eyewitnesses of the risen Lord and by Christ's special calling in the church. And then Paul became an apostle, having met been met directly by God. So technically at that point they're 13, um, but but nobody gets to, Nobody else gets to claim the status of apostle, right? No other disciple can be an apostle. So before Jesus was crucified, he actually had a lot more disciples than just 12. And, and they were both men and women. Um, it, it's just that the special authority was given to those 12 slash 13. But in this case, Jesus is affirming that all authority is his. So even though he's speaking to the 11 remaining disciples before Matthias was chosen. This applies to all followers of Jesus. we got to read it. we got to do it. And the wording isn't just a special mission to pastors and missionaries and others who serve on a vocational level, but all of us. It speaks to all of us. Now listen, if you're... As you're going as you're going, is speaking in terms of whatever it is we are doing. Do this thing, right? So 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And Colossians 3, verse 17, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then further down, Colossians 3, it says in verse 23 and 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, in our passage today, we see that this includes evangelism. In our culture, proselytizing is seen as a negative thing. Right, We're told to respect the beliefs of others. We shouldn't try to force our values on other people. Uh, don't try to change them. Don't try to convince them of something different. And while the respect part is good, we need to recognize that our only hope in life and death is that we belong, we are not our own rather, but we belong to God. Our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own but belong to God. It would be unloving not to give that hope to others, wouldn't it? But this is also an appeal to reason. He says, go therefore. Like, right, because of what we previously read, do this. So what are we reading about? We're reading about Christ's authority. So because of Christ's authority, so because Jesus has responded to his resurrection by exerting his authority, do the following as you are going, right? And what's the following? Make disciples. What's a disciple again? One who follows Jesus and his teachings. This isn't just telling us to get them to come and belong to a church and, and then like the concept of Jesus, but to know Jesus and follow him. There's a common moniker out there that's used by a lot of the church leadership and marketing community. And, you know, they can be critical of, of a lot of the church, and they say that we kind of give the impression that before you can belong, you have to behave and believe. And they insist that the order should be belong, behave, believe. They support their idea by saying that we need to give people a place where they can belong in order that they can hear the gospel and believe it, and that believing, uh, behaving is the result of that belief. And they're right in saying that the behavior follows the belief. But the problem is that if you're not following Jesus by believing what he says and obeying it, you really are not part of the true church. So you don't actually belong, right? And we don't want to give people the impression that they can belong to God's community without God. We have a lot of strategies out there to promote church growth, a lot of marketing that can attract people without ever demonstrating their sinful depravity and desperate need for Christ's saving grace. And a lot of these strategies will, will attract a lot of people. But I, I agree with Stephen Lawson who said this, Jesus is not interested in big religious crowds. He already had one, and it crucified him. He wants disciples. Now, the true church is composed of those who follow Jesus and his teachings and submit to him. But don't get me wrong here. It's critically important that we do provide an atmosphere where outsiders feel welcomed and loved. Um, And and it's not necessarily a bad thing if if they have a sense of belonging because we love and welcome them. That's good, but the goal is that they, de- they become disciples and actually belong to the, to the community of God's people, actually belong to the true church, Christ's bride. And we need to understand that while we believe that God is sovereign and that all who the Father gives the Son will come to Him and that He will never cast them out, that doesn't absolve us of the responsibility to obey Him and participate in His mission. Remember we read this in Luke? Luke 5, 9 and 10. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. That was uh, Peter, or Levi, and James and John. It says, then also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Simon, I'm sorry, not, not Levi, Simon. <laughs> and Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. Matthew gives the same account. He said to them, Matthew 4, 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now here he's affirming his authority and giving this mission to all the believers in the passage we're studying today. What's the first act of obedience that we're told about in Scripture when we become a follower of Jesus? I think maybe Baptism? Yeah, It's baptism, right? That's what it is, right? Look what happens as the church is rapidly growing in Acts. In the very earliest days of the church, after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, this is what Peter says as he's preaching. Acts 2.38. And Peter, sa- Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And how do the crowds respond? Move a little further to verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. They believed and were baptized. And I think in our contemporary churches today, we tend to see baptism as more optional because it, we're not saved by works, right? But here's the thing, the early the early Christians would never have understood any concept that you could have faith and then not act on that faith. Obedience was the outcome of faith, and if there was no obedience, the faith would have been seen as insincere at best. So part of the command to make disciples is that they will submit to Christ's authority in baptism. And in baptism, the Christian is coming into submission of the Lordship of Christ. Louis Barbieri said such an act would associate a believer to Christ and with the triune God. And that's why Jesus says to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We call that the baptismal formula. This indicates that we should never baptize somebody too hastily. They need to actually know who Jesus is before they can know Him and submit to Him. Here's the confusing part. We worship one God. Mark 12, to 31. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He continues, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. In this case, Jesus is evoking the Hebrew Shema when he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We worship one God. But our God exists, our one God exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we say that the Father is Yahweh, the Son is Yahweh, the Holy Spirit is Yahweh, but the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. And that gives us a framework to work within, right? We've spent a lot of time going into more detail on that, and we'll do that again in the future. But for now, what we need to see is that People need to know who God is before we baptize them. Jesus continues telling his disciples to teach. Keep in mind there there has to be some teaching up to this point, before this point. This isn't necessarily chronological because there's some overlap with this. We won't baptize someone who isn't a disciple of Jesus, but in order to get them to the point that they know Jesus, we have to teach them, right? We have to teach them who he is. and. In order for them to be baptized, we have to make sure that they understand the gospel and who God is. But the teaching doesn't end there. It only begins there. Sanctification is a lifetime of being made more like Jesus by learning who He is through His Word and through good Bible teaching, uh, which is an important part of that. Deuteronomy 5.32. It says, you should be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord God has commanded you, you shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. So we do these things. Joe Capolio says, The great commission is given by the highest authority in the universe, and it is binding on all disciples for all time. So Jesus affirmed his authority and has given instruction to his disciples. Here it is. Jesus responds to his resurrection by receiving worship from his followers, by asserting his authority to his followers, and by commissioning his followers, number three. Doesn't end there, though. The end of verse 20, the very last piece of Matthew, it says, and behold, boy, what a great, what a great way to end a, a gospel book, right? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age he's met them on a mountain he he appeared to his disciples in glory on the mount of transfiguration in Matthew 17 he resisted temptation from the devil on a mountain it was on a mountain that he delivered the sermon on the mount back in the old testament God met Moses on a mountain and now he's affirming his authority and eternal presence on a mountain as he commissions his followers what does that tell us about the great commission It's really important to God. In scripture, God likes to use mountaintop experiences to reveal himself to his people. So how how is God revealing himself to you on this mountain today? Think about that for a minute. Up on a mountain with his disciples is the God of all creation who has authority in heaven and on earth. All authority. He authoritatively tells his followers to recruit more disciples. And then he follows up by promising his presence. Listen to that. The God of the universe, the Son of God, steps off his eternal throne to become flesh and dwell among us. He's born in a barn. He grows up in a lower middle class, blue collar home. He takes on a trade and then becomes a rabbi ultimately. He's functionally homeless for much of his three year public ministry. He willingly submits to the same form of execution that they would give a serial killer after having been beaten to the point that most of us probably would not be able to survive. And then he dies. And then he's buried. And then that third day comes along. And he rises from the dead and reaffirms his eternal divine authority over all creation. He is risen. Hmm. Can't say that enough, huh? And his authority can never be questioned or usurped. It can never be successfully challenged. He has authority over Vladimir Putin. He has authority over Joe Biden. He has authority over Vladimir Zelensky. And every world leader, past, present, and future... He reigns over Elon Musk. He reigns over Dr. Fauci. He reigns over Bill Gates. None of them, not one person could cause a single world event, not even a tiny one without His divine permission. John Calvin said before promising He would be with them, He began with declaring that He is the King of Heaven and Earth who governs all things by His power and authority. This God of all authority promises his presence with every one of his followers. Do you get that? Present with us. If you are a Christian, if you follow Jesus, present with you is all authority. promises His presence to every one of His followers. Emmanuel, God with us forever. I am with you always, all the days. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you if you haven't already repented don't you want to? so Jesus responds to his resurrection by receiving worship from his followers by asserting his authority to his followers by commissioning his followers and by being present with his followers Jesus' response to his resurrection gives us perfect authority to submit ourselves to Gives us a mission that will never grow cold, will never go old, will never go away until he comes back and the promise of his presence to the end of days. It's everything we need. Everything we need to live in confidence and hopefulness as humans in this broken earth until he comes back to restore it all to himself. How is he speaking to you on this mountain? May you cling tightly and unflinchingly to the risen Lord in all confidence and hopefulness. And may Jesus grant you the greatest joy this side of eternity as subjects of our loving God and Savior this Easter. Let's pray. Our holy God, Who are we? Who are we that you should be mindful of us? Who are we that you would love us and give your only begotten on our behalf? Thank you for your great love. Thank you for the proof of your power to forgive our sins through the resurrection. Thank you that he has promised his presence to us all the days. God, forgive us of our sins. We are desperately sinful. We have not loved you. We've not loved you with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We need forgiveness each and every day. No, each and every moment of each and every day. God, let us look upon the risen Lord Worship Him rightly. Submit faithfully to His authority. Fulfill His great commission to us. And know His presence intimately each and every moment you graciously allow us to live. We offer ourselves to you to honor and obey you as we move forward from this sacred and holy week and enter our mission field. May we glorify our risen Lord now and forever. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.